Well, um, you know how some passages when you read and you go, oh, that was so good, and it, it's hard for the preacher to come up and try to explain that. If you had that sort of reaction to this reading, there's something wrong with you. <laughs> Let's pray that God will speak to us after this passage. Lord, we thank you that all scripture is God-breathed, and we pray that this inspired word of God will build us up um, as we open it up this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, the late novelist David Foster Wallace um, started his commencement speech at Kenyon College with the story. You might have heard the story. There are these two young, uh, two young fish swimming along, and they happen to meet an older fish swimming the other way, who nods at them and says, Morning, boys. How's the water? And the two young fish swim by for a bit, and eventually one of them looks at the other and goes, What the heck is water? <laughs> Of course, when you're a fish in the water, you don't know what water is because it's all around the fish. Um, The most obvious things are the things that surround us, and it's those things that we're most unaware of. And culture in this world is all around us. It defines what is normal for us in many, many different ways, in ways that we are unaware The world actively defines what a normal life is, what a normal way of seeing and evaluating people is, what a normal God would do. And this scripture, I think, tells us um, that there are surprising things about what a normal life is, how we should see people, and what God is like. And as we saw last week, um, the the Israelites um, did not cry out. Under the oppression of the Philistines, I think the first point um, should come up. The Philistines' culture had become a part of the Israelites' culture. They lived among the Philistines. Their idols became their idols. Their values became, the Philistines' uh, values became the values of the Israelites. And they lived among the Philistines. Actually, they don't have to go very far to find the Philistines among them, right? So they go to Timnah. Samson goes to Timnah to find the wife. And Timnah, um, we're told in uh, Joshua 19.43, is in Israel. It was in a territory allotted to the tribe of Dan. So they, the Philistines are all around, all, uh, all around the Israelites. They're living among them. I want to say that the Bible actually isn't fundamentally against the Philistines. Um, It's not the people. It's actually the religion. It's the idols that they worship. You see, when Samson requests this Gentile woman as his wife, his father answers in verse 3. He says, must you go and find, uh, must you go to the uncircumcised Philistines to get a wife? You see, it's the uncircumcised Philistines because circumcision was a mark of us belonging, people belonging to God. And what he's saying is, here, these people are uncircumcised. These people do not belong to Yahweh God. It's not that they are Gentiles. It's that they do not worship Yahweh God. They're not under the same covenant. You see, um, remember, uh, there were Gentiles in, in their midst, um, we, we saw that the first judge, uh, Othniel, Othniel had mixed blood. We saw how Egyptians, when they came out of Exodus with the Israelites, they became part of Israel. They worshipped God Yahweh. 
what the father, uh, Samson's father, and the Bible objects to is the worship of idols. God does not want idols in the midst of Israel because there, uh, there's only one God, and Israelites belong to him. They're set apart to worship him. But of course, Samson isn't concerned about being distinct, being holy to worship this Yahweh God. Remember how the angel of Yahweh appeared last week um, in chapter 13 and says that Samson will begin to deliver Israelites out of the Philistines, out of the hands of the Philistines. Samson, but Samson is too cozy with the Philistines. The first thing that he wants to do with the Philistines is not to deliver Israelites out of the hands of the Philistines, but, but to marry one, to marry a Philistine. And Israelites, the rest of the Israelites are no better. When the Philistines come to Judah, later on in chapter 15, to arrest Samson, Judahites do not get mobilized to fight against the Philistines. Rather, they take 3,000 people and go to, uh, go to Samson to arrest him. So they have, remember, Gideon saved Israel, Israelites uh, with 300 people. They have 3,000 people among them, and they go to arrest Samson. And they say to Samson, What have you done to us? Don't you realize that Philistines rule among us, rule over us? They have, they no longer have Yahweh as their ruler. They have accepted the fact that that they lived among, they lived among Philistines, that these Gentiles are their rulers and their judges, that there is no virtually difference, virtual difference between them. They want to, they don't want to cause any trouble amongst the Philistines. And then I want to ask the question once again, are we all that different? Are we all that different? This culture, this water is all around us and we live in it and we breathe it, we drink it in. And we're astonished that Samson would marry somebody, a a Philistine, a Philistine woman, a person of a different God. But how is it that our young people don't think twice about marrying a non-Christian, a person who worships a different God? They often say, well, my boyfriend, girlfriend lets me go to church, lets me practice my Christianity. But we are a people of God, people who are set apart for God. That our, every, All the things that we do, our motivations, all our actions should stem from our love of God himself. And wouldn't being with somebody who, is, who doesn't have Jesus as at the center of their life, wouldn't that make us push, push Jesus out of the center of our lives as well? Why would we want to marry such a person? Now, this isn't obviously to those, uh, written to those who are um, already married to non-Christians. Paul's very clear that you have to be a witness you have to be a witness in that marriage to your, um, to your spouses. But, of course, it's not just dating non-Christian that this passage uh, talks to, uh, speaks about. It's about the idols that the world um, has that has become part of our life as well. And I think it, I saw this uh, picture um, at Causeway. Um, this, is, uh, this is water in Hong Kong, isn't it? It says it's a BMW car, comer, uh, car, car advertisement that said, Joy is prosperity. Joy is prosperity. Isn't that the water in Hong Kong? People who worship prosperity. People who worship uh, money. 
this poster says, joy is prosperity. There's another picture that's in Shekmun these, uh, these days. Um, this is something that I walk by every day. It says, elevation of status. And this picture says, life is about elevation of status, to move up, to make progress and go forward. How is it that we pass by these things without flinching? Don't we worship God who stripped himself of all status to serve, to become a servant, even uh, to take death upon the cross for us? And we take jobs, we take promotions, we move to a different place without asking ourselves, is there a church there? What If I take this job, if I move to this place, what kind of a person will this make me? Will this help me to put Jesus at the center of my, of my life? Will this affect my spiritual life? How is it that we make these important decisions of our lives without asking those questions? Will Jesus be at the center of my life? The Israelites adjusted to the norms of the day. They didn't want to be different. They didn't want to cause any trouble amongst the Philistines. They didn't want to put God at the center of their lives because it was too much trouble for them. But they should have. And so should we. We must cause trouble. We must stand out in this world because we are people who love Jesus. Are people who are set apart for Jesus, people who are bought by the blood of Jesus Christ. We're anointed, as we will see, with the Spirit of Christ. We should live lives that are different, that are outside of the norm of this world. Have we drank in too much of the water that's around us? And secondly, living lives, then, outside of this box, um, must mean that we evaluate people and the world differently as well, with a different set of standards. People of this world value abilities, don't we? I've talked about this before. I think, in fact, Judges is now coming to a close, and a lot of the themes that we have seen before is coming back up again, maybe highlighted as well. But we saw this in Gideon, but people in this world value abilities, Michael Jordan, by all accounts, is a terrible, terrible person. But we forgive him because he was the greatest basketball player in the world. Tiger Woods admitted to having been addicted to sex with the utter disregard for his marriage. But now we're forgetting, to, we're forgetting what he had done. Well, because he's a, he's a phenomenal uh, golf, uh, uh, golf player, golfer. Golfer? Yes, golfer. Bill Clinton is hailed as one of the greatest presidents of American, uh, modern American history. Of course, we overlook his character. After Steve Jobs' death, that book came out that spoke about his extraordinary brilliance, but also of his terrible mistreatment of his colleagues, friends, subordinates. But all's forgiven because he invented, uh, he invented the iPhone. We live in a culture that values abilities, ability to do things. And Samson would be a hero in our days, wouldn't he? Look at his extraordinary strength. He makes Mike Tyson look like, well, me. (laughs) 
We're told three times that the Spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon him. Uh, chapter 14, 6 and verse 19 as well, 15, 14. And each time God's Spirit comes upon him, he's given this extraordinary strength. He, the first time, he tears a lion apart. It says like a, like a young goat. And I, think, I don't think I can tear a young goat apart. Um, but he tears a lion apart with his bare hands. The second time, he strikes down 30 people in Ashkelon. The third time, he was able to take, uh, tear down these ropes and destroy a thousand men with uh, the, the jawbone of a donkey. Jawbone of a donkey. I don't even know that that, that could be a weapon. The Spirit gifted him. God gave him that strength to deliver his people. His ability. And God gives gifts of the Spirit to all of us to do extraordinary things, to build the body of Christ up, to serve the, 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 the world. And many of you have the, some of these, just the gifts, not the fruit yet. Yeah. Um, some of you have these extraordinary gifts listed uh, by Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and, uh, and Romans 12, gifts of healing, miraculous powers, prophecy. Discernment, tongue, interpretation of service, teaching, generosity, administration, even hospitality. You have many of these gifts. But if we learn from, if we have anything to learn from this vindictive, violent, impulsive, lustful, and sensual man, is that having gifts of the Spirit is not the same thing as being in the right relationship with God. This world would consider many people People who lead large corporations, create innovative uh, medicines that save lives, or lawyers and doctors, people who serve people in this world, are blessed. Maybe, perhaps even say, they might say, these people are right with God. But we know better than that as Christians. We know better than that. But how about ministers? How about ministers who preach well, who build and uh, lead large churches, with great outreach ministries that help thousands of people. How about them? Pastors have written, who have written books and are traveling all around the world because the books have helped so many people. Doesn't that mean that they are in right relationship with God? That God is pleased with them? But remember the words, uh, Paul's famous words in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. He says there that you can speak um, in tongue you can speak and the prophecy, you can have extraordinary gift of discernment and knowledge, faith that can move the mountain, but lack, lack the fruit of the Spirit, love. You can have these gifts of the Spirit without the fruit of the Spirit. How can we tell then that we are in the right relationship with God? The key is that there is a difference, knowing that there is a difference between the gift of the Spirit and the fruit of the Spirit. Paul lists these gifts in uh, Galatians chapter 5, verse, verses 22 to 23. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Fruit of the Spirit are the characteristics, characters that the Holy Spirit bears in us as we look to Jesus Christ, as we depend on him. A good way of seeing whether a minister is in the right relationship with God is not by knowing the size of the congregation or his abilities. 
but by seeing whether he listens to his wife with gentleness after a long and tiring committee meetings. Seeing how he treats his parents who might be struggling with dementia. Whether he continues to hope and encourage a young Christian man who falls again and again in the same immature sins. And the amazing thing is that God, we have this indwelling of the Spirit in a way, in the, to a degree that Samson could not have imagined. The Spirit of the Lord was poured out upon the, on that Pentecost day. God has given himself the Spirit. John says, um, uh, John, uh, John says that actually the Spirit of God has, been, has not been given until the time of Christ because the, the Spirit, the, the, what has been given in the past pales in comparison to what we have been given. What this means is that God will bear his fruit in us. These things will happen to us as the Spirit points us to Jesus Christ, as we look to Him and depend on Him, as we are reminded of what He has done for us again and again for the rest of our lives. God will bear these fruit in us. So, don't be dazzled by people's abilities. Don't fool yourself. Don't evaluate yourself based on how fruitful your ministries have been, or how many people you are helping, how good you are. And don't be complacent. Look for the fruit of the Spirit. These qualities that point to the fact that this person lives dependent on Christ. So, out-of-the-box life, we should be living this out-of-the-box life. And we should be evaluating other people and ourselves with a, a standard that's different from the rest of the world. But I think what's most surprising from this text is how God is completely outside of what we normally expect God to be doing and what, what, what he is and how he acts. Throughout the book of Judges, when God wants to deliver his people, he has raised up a deliverer. Um, and around the deliverer, around the judge, he has mobilized a great number of people and went and fought um, with this army. And you think, because Samson is now a judge, you think God will do the same. Why wouldn't God do the same? This is what God has been doing throughout the history in the book of Judges. But actually, that's not what we get. Maybe it's because the Israelites have gone so far off the rail that actually fighting against the Israel, uh, Philistines is not an option for the, uh, for the Israelites. They're too comfortable with them. They don't want to fight against the Philistines. So he raises up Samson for this job. But you think, Samson, really, Samson. He's everything uh, that a man of God should not be. The only time that he calls on Yahweh God is because when he's thirsty. He goes, I'm going to die unless you do something for me right now. He's like a baby crying out. Why would God raise him up to be the judge over Israel? And if you ask the question, uh, as I have, it's because there is this belief in us that it's only uh, God will work through only people who have the right set of beliefs. But people who are, who are the right set of characters, people who do things in the right way. 
God does, of course, use many of these people. Deborah was a great judge, and um, um, Othniel as well. But also, he goes outside of our expectations. Actually, he does this quite a lot. And I think this is the reason why God does this. Um, uh, uh, um, the, the reason is because God is God of grace, not of works. If we believe that we have to have the right set of beliefs, right set of characters for God to use us, then we have set ourselves up for theology of works, haven't we? God is God of grace. God uses all kinds of messed up people like you and I. God is God of undeserved mercy. The book of Judges has been all about God's grace. In fact, the whole Bible is about that. God is gracious and powerful, and he will deliver sinful people who have no business of being saved through people who have no business of saving anybody else. And what is more, even more astonishing, another surprise factor here is that God does not only use the good intentions of good people or even of evil people, good intentions of evil people, but evil intentions of the evil people in this story. Samson, remember, grunts out. I mean, I think he's just like a barbarian. I mean, he grunts out, ah, I want this woman. Could you get her for me? He says to his father, and we're told in verse, uh, chapter 14, verse 4, this extraordinary verse. His parents did not know that this was from the Lord, from Yahweh, who was seeking an occasion to confront the Philistines. You see what God is doing. Samson is grunting out out of his lustful eyes, but God is accomplishing his purpose through Samson. This is exactly what Joseph confessed at the end of Genesis chapter 50. Right? You, what he says to his brothers, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. You see, God doesn't cause these evil intentions. Samson is wholly responsible still, but God is sovereign even in them, even of the evil intentions of the people. He's directing history through these evil intentions. Everyone in this story actually acts out of their evil intentions and out of their ungodly characters. Samson acts out of impulsive selfishness all the time. The wedding guest then threatens Samson's wife with violence. The wife then goes and manipulates Samson. And then um, this chain of events that happen, Samson then kills the 30 people uh, to get their clothes so that he can fulfill the bet that he made with these 30 people. And the wife then given, is given over to one of the groomsmen. Samson comes to look for his wife, but he finds the wife is given over to another man. Samson gets angry, then he ties up the, the foxtails and burns these, the, the whole field. And they, the Philistines then come and kill Samson's wife uh, and, and her father. Samson then takes revenge on them um, by slaughtering many people. And the Philistines then gather, uh, come and uh, 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 threaten the Israelites. And then Israelites then go to Samson and hands him over uh, to the Philistines. And Samson then kills a thousand Philistines. All these things happen through their evil intentions, out of their vengeance uh, and selfishness. But God was accomplishing his will through them all. 
God was setting Philistines apart from the Israelites, saying, these are my people. I'm going to put enmity, this hatred between you two. I'm going to set you apart, even though you have become so comfortable in Philistine, with the, amongst the Philistines. Of course, our evil deeds have consequences. But what we see is God, who is greater than what we can imagine, power that's greater than what we can imagine. And we can rejoice in that God is in the business of using our failures as foundations for his success, his will. So just as when you think you have figured God out, you think, if, I'm, if I become this sort of person, if we put ourselves in this sort of situations, um, if um, we do this, or God cannot do this until we're confronted with God, who is bigger than our minds can grasp. And that's why, 2,000 years ago, when God came as a human being, no one, no one understood him. People thought he was a miracle worker. The disciples didn't quite get who Jesus was. His closest disciple, Peter, when Jesus said, I have to go and die, vigorously protested, no, you can't die. Even now, Muslims believe that Jesus was never crucified because a Messiah should not die like that. They can't imagine a God like that. They can't believe that God is bigger than us that his power unimaginably greater than us, his wisdom beyond our understanding, and his grace beyond our comprehension. But that is the God that we see here in this passage. And most clearly, that's the God that we see in Jesus Christ. David Foster Wallace ended that commencement speech with this gem. He says, The real value of real education which has almost nothing to do with knowledge and everything to do with simple awareness, awareness of what is real and essential, so hidden in the plain sight all around us, all the time, that we have to keep reminding ourselves over and over again, this is water, this is water, this is water. So I want to ask, what is a normal life in Hong Kong? What is a normal life? What is the normal way of seeing people, of evaluating people? What do we expect a normal God to do? And I pray that you will go out and live an extraordinary, extraordinary life, seeing people in the extraordinary ways, trusting in this extraordinary God, and be surprised throughout your life by the great power and the wisdom and grace of God in Jesus Christ that is beyond our understanding. Amen.